Hello everyone, it's good to be coming to you as I present some thoughts from my study of Psalms chapter 27. I chose this topic based on a suggestion from Mike Gagnier before the situation we find ourselves in now. However, I've found it to be very relevant to our current events and how we respond to this situation. I don't know about anyone else, but the words of John Glock keep ringing in my ears. Life is hard, but it might not get easier. It's hard to believe that we heard that only a few months ago. Few people at the time anticipated how relatable that statement would become in the coming months. In Psalm 27, we can learn from David how to react when life doesn't get easier. In this chapter, we see the reliance that David has on the Lord, the faithfulness of the Lord, and the intimate relationship that they have. Let's read Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle, in the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me, and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me, nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desires of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to you now. And as we study this passage, there's many good lessons that we can learn and apply to our lives. So we pray that uh, we would be able to listen with open hearts and open minds as we go through the lessons that David learned and the praise for you that he had. In Jesus' name, amen. The first verse of this chapter, chapter 27, says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? This verse starts with saying, The Lord is my light. Now, light is a topic I know something about. In the literal sense, light has many uses and functions. One of the common uses is illumination for finding the way at night, and this is a field that I've worked in professionally for the last several years. 
The company I work for manufactures searchlights for ships and smaller boats with ranges to more than five miles. That's for the beam of light. And as an engineer responsible for designing new products, I've had to learn a lot about light. And it's a complex topic. There are well over a dozen measurement units that characterize light in various aspects of color, quantity, intensity, power, characteristics of how the light is emitted, and different uh, ways of measuring how it's detected and how much light it produces at a distance. Without adequate lighting, vessels and vehicles would not be able to safely travel at night, and for that matter, we wouldn't even be able to find our way across a room. In a more broad sense, light is required for all life on Earth. Sitting next to my desk here, I have some seedlings growing before transplanting outside. They have lights mounted directly over them to provide the energy that they need in order to grow. In fact, different phases of plant growth have different light requirements, both in terms of color and intensity. Germination does not actually require light most for most plants and seeds, but light is needed for foliage development, and then even more light is needed to actually produce fruit. Now this verse, the first verse of chapter 27, is the first time that light is used as a metaphor for God. There are several non-literal aspects of light that come to mind here. These include guidance and direction in decision-making, the energy or motivation to live, and then righteousness, light being the opposite of darkness, which is associated with evil and sin. The Lord is the source of David's light in life. Long after David recognized the Lord as the source of his light, Jesus directly states it about himself in John 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. John describes this again in 1 John 1, verses 5 through 7. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. This brings up another property of light and darkness. Uh, I was with Isaac and Shepard the other morning, and they were playing with a little night light type light we have that has a light sensor to turn the light on and off. And Isaac said to Shepard, you have to put the darkness on it to turn the light on. And I thought about that, and that uh, that's really not how light works. Darkness is the default condition in the absence of light, and you can't place darkness anywhere. You can't take light away using darkness. Likewise, sinfulness is the default condition of the soul. We need the light of Christ to replace the darkness in our heart. David also mentions this idea in verse 1 when he describes his reliance on the Lord for salvation, the freedom from the sin of his own soul. In the second part of this verse, David acknowledges the Lord as the defender of his life. When he says, the Lord is the defense of my life, I think David understood this at a more visceral level than most of us can. The dangers that most of us usually face are random in terms of who they happen to, and they're statistically unlikely to happen, and even then we take great lengths to minimize those risks. We wear seat belts when we drive, and we purchase cars with airbags, and then we take care to maintain our vehicles in safe working condition. 
we consider crime rates as we think about the neighborhood we want to move to. We have a chapel security watch in the unlikely event that an intruder intends to harm us as we meet. We make dietary choices to help avoid chronic medical conditions like heart disease or diabetes, or at least we want to make those choices. Even with the COVID-19 virus that has upended society around the world, it's an invisible enemy that we take great lengths to avoid. The dangers to David's life were often quite the opposite. They were physical enemies, people and armies who were themselves very intimidating, and confrontations with them were elective. A retreat was always an option. Goliath cursed David and told him, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. The danger to David in that scenario couldn't be more clear. David confidently engaged with Goliath in spite of the danger, based on his confidence that the Lord would protect his life. When I consider David's attitude that this verse describes, I'm reminded of the word frog, or actually the acronym F-R-O-G, that I saw around the time that WWJD was a popular question. It was a reminder to fully rely on God. I think that term fit David perfectly. Between light, salvation, and defense, David was fully relying on God. The rhetorical questions that David asked in this verse, Whom shall I fear and whom shall I dread, show the peace that comes from relying on the Lord. David didn't need to be worried about what could happen to him. I know that many people struggle with anxiety, but that's an issue that I've never thought myself to be very susceptible to. I find myself thinking in the present more than in the future, and my future thoughts are usually quite optimistic. A few incidents in the last year, though, caught me off guard and have made me question myself in regards to anxiety. I suppose they could be considered panic attacks as it felt like my brain was overwhelmed and the walls were closing in. I realized that my own mind was not as strong as I had believed as it became overwhelmed trying to judge the likelihood and impact of various concerns, and it found itself operating in an unfamiliar mode as fear briefly crowded out any other thought. David tells us in this psalm that the cure for anxiety is reliance on the Lord and trust in his ability to meet your needs. If we are trusting in the Lord, we realize that even if he chooses not to preserve our life on earth, he still has a purpose and we have a heavenly home to look forward to. This eternal perspective can bring great peace as it means death is not the end. I'd like to read Romans 8, 35-39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here, Paul describes that he views himself as a sheep to be slaughtered, yet even if that happens, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So this shows the eternal perspective in that 
Paul views his life as not just about his own gratification, but really a tool to be used of the Lord for his ends, regardless of what that means for him. Let's continue looking at verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 27. When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this I shall be confident. In verse 2, David describes how the evildoers who come against him stumble and fall. Charles Spurgeon had an appropriate quote. It is a hopeful sign for us when the wicked hate us. If our foes were godly men, it would be a sore sorrow. But as for the wicked, their hatred is better than their love. As for the wicked, their hatred is better than their love. I think that's a good thought to consider as we evaluate the company we keep and keep in mind who we are trying to impress. David tells how his trust in the Lord to defend his life has given him courage and strength to conquer those who went up against him. He knew that he could be delivered even when vastly outnumbered, and he wasn't anxious about the threat of war. He had seen deliverance from the Lord too many times to not trust that he could deliver the victory against impossible odds. It's common knowledge that David was a mighty warrior, but I wanted to get an idea of how many battles he was in. Here's the list I came up with. He fought the lion and the bear. This is when he was a shepherd. He killed Goliath. He went on various missions that were assigned by Saul. We read in 1 Samuel 18, verse 5. He killed 200 Philistines as payment for marrying Saul's daughter, Michael. That's later in 1 Samuel 18. There were various Philistine battles. He raided the Geshurites, Gerzites, and Amalekites while living in the country of the Philistines. And then in 2 Samuel 8, this is after he's king, it's recorded that he defeated the Philistines, he defeated the Moabites, he defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah, he defeated the Arameans of Damascus, he defeated the Edomites, and then in 2 Samuel 10, he defeated the Ammonites, and he defeated the Aramean army. So it's really an incredible body of work, you could call it, uh, from his career as a warrior, both before and after he was crowned king of Israel. Let's move on to verse 4 of chapter 27. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. I find this to be a beautiful expression of David's singular desire for an intimate relationship with the Lord. He wants to live in the presence of the Lord knowing his beauty, and being consumed with thoughts of him. When David says that he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord, he is not referring to the magnificent temple, which of course did not exist at that point. The Lord's dwelling place on earth was more humble. In David's day, this would have been near the Ark of the Covenant, where God's earthly presence was centered. In Second Samuel chapter 6, David has the Ark brought to Jerusalem, He has a tent set up for it in verse 17 of that chapter. He is rejoicing as it travels to Jerusalem, and he plans to build a proper home for it until the prophet Nathan hears otherwise from the Lord. Instead, David's son Solomon will be the one to build the temple, but the kingdom will be in David's family forever. Rather than being disappointed that he wouldn't be able to build the temple for the Lord, David is humbled that the Lord has made a covenant with him, a mere man, 
and he praises the Lord for all he has done for David and his family. I think this verse is a good point to evaluate our priorities as we consider the focus on the Lord and purity of desire that David expresses, in spite of the many distractions that he would have been faced with both as a king and as a warrior. It is so easy for us to drop our gaze from the Lord and be distracted with things of the world. David also speaks of his desire to dwell in the Lord's house eternally in the familiar verse of Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's move on to verses 5 and 6. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. David describes how the Lord will lift him up and how he will respond. That's with worship to the Lord. He is confident that the Lord will exalt him above his enemies, and David will praise him with shouts of joy and with songs, which is what he does. Samuel records David's last address to the nation in 2 Samuel 22, and he introduces it this way in verse 1. And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. David says in the following verses, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call on the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. And David continues praising the Lord for nearly 50 more verses. Psalm 18 also records this speech. I think we, or at least I, often acknowledge the work of the Lord inwardly, or to other believers, David wants the whole nation to know the power of the Lord in his life. I think we should consider how to publicly acknowledge the grace that the Lord provides in our lives as well. Let's look now at verses 7 through 10. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. I think the tone in these verses is one of desperation. The Lord is the one David turns to when he is in distress. There's nowhere else he can go, and certainly no one who can give the kind of attention and deliverance that the Lord can. Verse 7 tells of the need to cry out to God in times of need. Many commentators have noted a difference between silent prayer and vocal prayer that I found interesting. I hadn't really thought too much about before, but there is an added earnestness with prayer aloud, even when done in private. The use of the word cry here also implies an earnestness and a rawness of emotion. David also boldly asks for an answer, while humbling himself by recognizing that an answer would come only by God's grace. This is the same thought expressed in Hebrews 4.16. 
Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's acknowledging the Lord's position and our humble position. In verse 8, we see the Lord's call and David's affirmative echo, which calls to mind Deuteronomy 4.29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. David shows his willingness to follow the Lord's command given in that verse. We saw earlier in verse 4 that this was already David's desire. In verse 9, David desperately asks the Lord to stay with him, even if his own father and mother abandon him. The Hebrew word kai that's used here is ambiguous and could mean either for or if. David has sent his parents away to Moab for their safety, which is recorded in the first part of 1 Samuel 22. Not knowing when the psalm was written, I think it could also refer to their death, perhaps. In either event, it shows that reliance on other people, even family members, can lead to disappointment. Even when faith is hard and we doubt the presence of the Lord, considering David's tone of desperation, he can be dependent on. Let's continue on through the next few verses, starting with verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Here we see that David wants to learn the ways of the Lord. He realizes that they are better than worldly wisdom. I think the second part of verse 11 refers to David not wanting to stumble and give his enemies, both outside of and inside of his authority, an opportunity to exploit his mistakes. As king of the nation, he would be observed to find vulnerabilities that could be attacked in various ways. Verse 12 indicates that David realizes that he's living in this type of environment with enemies who want to defeat him and are willing to go to any length to do so, including lying about him or attacking him physically. We even see his own son Absalom turning against him and attempting to overthrow him. David would be unable to thrive in such a hostile environment without the protection of the Lord. His faith in and his experience with the Lord gives him hope for success and he recognizes that it only comes by the blessing of the Lord. Now let's look at the last verse in the chapter. It says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Now this is a verse of encouragement from David. He or we may not understand the Lord's timeline, but he realizes that part of trusting God also includes patiently waiting for his will to be revealed. I think this is where many of us find ourselves now. It feels like our lives are on hold, and it's uncertain when we'll be able to return to some sense of normalcy. All we can do is wait and trust. Second Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I think in fearful times like we are in now, when we don't know what the future holds, for ourselves or for society at large, it's even more important to be courageous and clear thinking. As I mentioned before, I found myself struggling with this and had to be more selective in what I was thinking about and how I was thinking about it, and instead 
remember how the Lord has provided for me in the past and look forward to seeing how he'll provide for me in the future. So I hope you've appreciated these thoughts from Psalm 27. David certainly had quite a life and quite a heart after the Lord. It's refreshing to see, and really it's a challenge for us to think about what our focus is on, how we should live, and where we should place our hope and our trust. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can gather even in unusual ways with the technology that you've provided for us. We just pray that you would give wisdom to those planning and considering how to reopen the chapel building for physical meetings and physical fellowship. We pray for those who are undergoing anxiety and really doubts that are coming from all kinds of sources right now. We just pray that you would provide peace for them, help them to consider things clearly, and to put their hope and their trust in you. We just thank you again for your son, who he is, and what he means to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.